We're considering Romans chapter 6 these uh, Sunday nights. And tonight we're going to look at verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. Romans 6, 5. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Now, the theme of this chapter sounds complicated, but it isn't complicated. It is the theme of the Christian's union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're all familiar with uh, such a theme. For example, in marriage, we talk about a man and a woman being joined together in marriage, about the two becoming one flesh. And marriage is immensely important to all over the world. So that a man loves a woman and that woman reciprocates so that she loves the man and they give themselves to each other. And they don't look at anyone else and they stay joined together, supporting one another, raising their children all their lives long until one of them passes away and ends the union. That's very common. Millions of men and women all over the world live like that. And because God has... uh, given this creation ordinance of marriage for all the creatures that are made in his image. Then, So he creates a longing for it in the hearts of men and women, and he gives grace so that they fulfill that longing. One man, one woman, united together until death as do part. Now, the real Christian, the only Christian there is, is a believer in Jesus Christ, And in that faith, in that commitment of himself to Jesus Christ, he's been united to the Son of God. We were in him. We were in him through his righteous life. We were in him in his death. We are certainly in him, in his resurrection life. God joined us to him and gave us the benefits of what he himself is and what he himself has accomplished. We were in that lovely, fragrant life of Christ. And so uh, we became righteous because we were joined to him. We were in his painful dying and death for our sins. And so we have been pardoned and cleansed of our blame. In him we are guilt-free. The power of sin over us has been broken. We were in him when he rose triumphant over the power of death. There was a miraculous protection of Christ from the Friday until the Sunday morning. So that his heart not beating and his blood not flowing around his body did not result in massive and irreparable damage to his body. His being dead was as harmless a period 
in the life of Jesus Christ as the thousands of nights when he had gone to bed, uh, first in Nazareth and then around Galilee, and gone to sleep. It was a sweet sleep. On the third day, he woke up. He opened one eye and he opened another eye. And he stood up and he undid the grave clothes that were around his head and around his body. And he stood active and alive to think and speak and walk for a long distance uh, later that day to Emmaus with heartbroken servants. We rose in him. We were joined to him in his resurrection. And we continue to live in him. It's by his strength that he's brought us here and he opens our ears and opens our minds and our understanding and he gives us a desire to know him more because our lives and his are now totally intertwined. And we will live in the power of an endless life because we've been raised in him. Um, it's certain. You see how Paul uses that word in verse 5? We will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. You think of a fish, think of a salmon or, or a whale, and you see how it leaps out of the water, and it takes gallons of water a whale does with him, and there is spray and water everywhere before it splashes back in again. You see it in slow motion. It's a great sight, isn't it? And so when Jesus rose from the dead, he brought us with him. All of us. We were in him when he rose up from the grave. Because I live, you shall live also, he says. We rose into a new life through Christ. And so that's the explanation for, for example, the, the phenomenon of the change of Saul of Tarsus, that hateful and merciless inquisitor general. What a transformation. And it lasted and lasted, the transformation. People didn't say, oh, it'll be over in a few weeks. No one thought that amongst the Christians. He was submissive to the Lord's will. Do you know, he could write things like this. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. Keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't rejoice in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. He wrote it. That was the result of being joined to Jesus Christ. And he lived like that 24-7. And that's how he taught his converts to live. He wrote to them and told them in Corinth that they were to live like this. That was a result of the transforming power of resurrection life in Saul of Tarsus. And then in those he discipled. They were united to Jesus Christ's living power. Now, for a moment, Paul wants to return to this particular theme of Jesus Christ on the cross. He goes back to it again. Written about it 
in the previous chapter. He's written about it already in this chapter, but it is so tremendously central to his convictions and his worship and his battle with sin and the strength he's given to live a Christian life. He returns to it again. Remember he tells the Corinthians that he was determined not to know anything among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. His preaching, he says, was the preaching of the cross. He couldn't help returning to Golgotha and surveying the wondrous cross where the Prince of Glory died. He tells them that his first priority, he writes to the Corinthians, he says, I tell you first of all, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That was the message that he had. He says he gloried in the cross of Christ. And his wonder was this. He loved me and gave himself for me. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift, he says. So it is not surprising when he talks about union with Christ that uh, here he will once again tell us and explain to us what the old rugged cross on which Jesus died means. And so the first point I want to bring to you this evening is that we have been united to Christ in his death. We mustn't forget it. We mustn't be bored by this as we go on to something more exciting in our lives. Let's examine his emphases in verses 6 and 7, and let's see how he elaborates them. Uh, This is what he says in those verses. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. There are four neat phrases there. And they open up the meaning of our union with Christ in his death beautifully. Firstly, our old self was crucified with Christ. Now that's a a very helpful translation. Your old self, well, your old self, what you used to be before you became a Christian. That's what it means. When you were independent of Jesus Christ, when you were unmarried to Jesus Christ, when you were unjoined to him and unbelieving in him, before God saved you, there was just you. You were old self, and that's all you had to face the future and death and all the challenges of life. You did not have an energy that comes from heaven that helps you when you're standing alone and you have to speak up. You didn't have the presence of Christ in your heart. You didn't have illimitable access to the indwelling spirit. You were all alone. You're on your own, kid. You faced the mystery of life and all that lay before you. Sicknesses, relationships, parenthood, old age, death. By yourself, your old self. But then, oh, the change took place. The friend spoke to you. You heard the preaching. You read about the gospel, you read the Bible, and you had a new insight. You were drawn to Jesus Christ. You heard a birth from heaven. You became a new creation. All things were new. You weren't the man you used to be. Where is the old self? Well, he's gone. (laughs) He's dead and buried. Search for him where you will, and you, you won't find the unbelieving old self you were, 
He was crucified with Jesus Christ long ago. He's disappeared. God has joined you to Jesus Christ and put him to death on Calvary. That's the end of the story of your old self. Paul says, we know this. That's what he says. You can see in our text before us. We know this. We are convinced and assured about this. This is something Christians talk about with one another. Isn't it great that we, we weren't the people we used to be? Isn't it great that I, I'm not the worrier and the drunkard and the gambler that I used to be? Isn't that wonderful? And then there are times when you say, what am I doing? Oh, I'm behaving just like my old self. How ridiculous, how antiquarian, that's my past. That's the man I used to be. I'm slipping and sliding back to that old lifestyle. Whoa, stop, turn around. Who would choose as a role model for Christian living a dying man hanging on the cross? What are we doing? Our old selves were crucified with Christ, dead, buried, gone. And then the second phrase, you'll notice the next phrase is about this cross and its implications for us. The body of sin is no longer there to control us. The body of sin. That's my paraphrase of it. Um, It's the first time in the letter that Paul uses the phrase the body of sin. He's going to use it again. Um, What is it? Well, it's not the sinful body. That's how the RSV translates it, and that's not so helpful. Our bodies do not have a virus called sin that has affected our brain and our lungs and our limbs and our nervous system and our blood and our bones. Ah, this poor sinful body in which the real me is trapped. That is not how the Bible looks at you and your body. It is not a body of sin. It's better to understand your body like this. Your body was designed by God and then created by God. And he breathed into you the breath of life and you were made in his image. And so he has given you um, good natural desires and instincts and hungers. He's given those to you. And what sin has done by the fall of our father Adam, what sin has done is to pervert all those hungers and desires. So the desire for sleep becomes sloth. And the desire for reproduction becomes all kinds of unnatural lusts. And uh, proper hunger becomes greed and obesity and the taste of wine becomes drunkenness and self-regard, becomes vanity. And so you see extraordinary figures, um, inspired men like David and Solomon, and their bodies became hungry and insistent organs that were directed by them to sin, to, to make gods and put them in Jerusalem and to lust after women. They did cruel and wicked things with their bodies. 
Or you think of the anger in Cain towards his brother Abel that resulted in him violently and hatefully shedding his blood and killing him. Or you think of the woman of Samaria who um, had had five husbands and now was living with a guy who wasn't her husband and her body was domineered by sinful thoughts and choices and actions. And so that is the lesson that Paul is bringing before us with this phrase. He tells us as Christians that the body of sin is, well, how does the NIV translate it? Done away with. That's how the NIV translates it. And then the authorized version, it translates it destroyed. I don't find those translations very helpful. The the Greek word that they're trying to translate is a very common word. It's found 27 times in the uh, New Testament. And um, it's given many, many different translations. In chapter 3 of this letter, it's translated nullify. Chapter 4, it's translated has no value. In chapter 7, it's translated released. And here, the NIV translates it done away with. There's a better translation, I'm sure, that the body of sin, our bodies cajoled and tempted and pressurized by the world that we live in, that those bodies don't control us, you. They don't control your mind. They don't control your affections and your consciences and your wills. So I think the phrase is saying that the body of sin no longer is a controlling force. And I think you can take that and you can put it in the other places in Romans and it's really a helpful translation. All right, let me illustrate it. Potiphar's wife. All right. She had her desire for Joseph. She had the opportunity to have him and the power to hide it from her husband. And she comes and she commands and she appeals to Joseph. She entices him. She tempts him. The body of sin that was Potiphar's wife, the body of sin dominated her life. But the body of sin, which was Joseph did not control how Joseph responded. It had been rendered null and void. He, as to his body of sin, had been changed. So that Joseph wasn't saying to himself when the woman came and sought to seduce him, this is my lucky day. Didn't say that. Go for it. Joseph, as to his body of sin, had been released from giving in to his lusts. Joseph's body didn't control him. God controlled his body. Joseph cried, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? For the Christian, his body like, is like um, a bull mastiff that is totally under the control of his master. He won't do a thing without looking to his master. If the master says to him, sit, he'll stay there. He'll stay there through thick and thin. He's totally under his domination. 
So here's this ferocious dog, and the little girl comes dancing. She's three years of old, and she comes dancing along the pavement right up to him. He doesn't budge. He doesn't flicker an eye. He doesn't growl at all. He doesn't twitch. His body of sin is not in control of him. His master is in control of him. And so it is with every Christian. Every Christian has been delivered from being controlled by the body of sin. We've been delivered from that. We're free from it. You know, it's very common to ask the question, but uh, can a Christian sin? And uh, then to say uh, immediately, of course he can. As though it was the most obvious and natural thing for a Christian to do, to sin. But in fact, it is the most unthinkable and mind-blowing action for someone who has been crucified with Christ to sin. John writes to Christians and he says to them, I'm writing this to you, that you do not sin. When the church member in Corinth went to a brothel, Paul says, do you know what you were doing? You were taking the members of the body of Christ and you were joining them to a prostitute. It was utterly shameful. And so if you ask the question, um, can a Christian sin? You say, God forbid. That's the answer. You don't find explanations of why it is possible for a Christian to sin. Here is someone in union with God. Here is someone in whose life the Holy Spirit dwells. And he's doing unthinkable things. How is it possible? The Bible doesn't say, well, there are two or three reasons why it is possible. The Bible says, we have to look in fear and say, God forbid that we should behave like this. Temptations will come strong and hot. And uh, you can be provoked by the constant repetition of questions by someone who is suffering from dementia and then you can react and you can get frustrated and you can raise your voice and you can be nasty to your shame, angry words to your shame. But there is always a better way to respond. There is always an option open to the Christian not to sin. We as to the bodies of sin don't respond by sinning because the body of sin doesn't have dominion over us. That's what he's saying. The third thing he's saying is we're no longer slaves to sin. Hagar was Sarah's slave and one day Sarah came to her and she said, I want you to go into Abram's bed and conceive a child with him. And her mistress told her to do that, and she was a slave to her mistress. And so she did exactly that. Now the scripture says the whole world is a slave of sin. And so Aberystwyth is a town of slaves, and the university is a college of slaves, and uh, Wales is a principality of uh, slaves, and the UK is uh, a kingdom of slaves, slaves to sin. Uh, you will find from the highest to the lowest, from the richest to the poorest, 
that men and women do what sin tells them to do. To keep God out of their lives and ignore the Bible and never give a second thought to Jesus Christ. And that's exactly how all the people around us, the boys in your class in school, the people at university that you meet, your neighbors, they are slaves to sin. And all the time they are boasting about their freedom and uh, they pity the poor religious suckers who have to keep Sunday special and go to church and they're free. And in fact, we are freely doing what we want to do, what we love to do. And they are the slaves of sinful unbelief. We are the free bond servants of Jesus Christ and there is no one else we want to serve in all the world because in his service is perfect freedom. The fourth thing that we're told about this union with Christ in, in his dying is that every Christian has died and is freed from sin. And he's talking about our union and that all who were joined to Jesus when he died, they died too. Familiar themes and he repeats them again and again. He is our Lord and he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. Not uh, just to have a look at the capital city, but in order to receive there the wages of sin. And Jesus took the condemnation, God's hatred of all that is mean and cruel and ugly. And he took the condemnation of that in his own body as God the Son on the cross. And he did that once and for all for us. So sin had no more claim over Jesus Christ and no sin can have its claim over us. Jesus did not suffer God's condemnation for his own sins, for he had none, but because he took us to him and he held us and he wouldn't come down from the cross and he wouldn't end the enfleshment until we had been cleaned and justified and sanctified and ready for glory. He has borne our penalty and we have borne the penalty for our sin in Christ. So that we never, never need to die for our sins. He's dealt with our guilt and we've died to him and in him and through him we are freed from the condemnation of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who've been crucified with him. The debt of blame and shame has all been cleared. The just and righteous punishment has all been taken by Jesus Christ. We, we don't fear the great white throne. We don't fear standing before God who knows the very worst things, the things we are most ashamed of that we hope that even our nearest and dearest know nothing about. We're not afraid of meeting Jehovah who knows our every thought and word and deed and they are foul in his eyes. We deserve eternal death. But God has provided his son, joined us to his son, condemned our sin in his son and freed us from his the penalty of it and its condemnation, we are washed. And the dominion of sin is no longer over us. We're freed from any punishment that sin requires. We're freed from it because the punishment has been borne already 
by Jesus Christ, our Savior. And I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, Christ lives in me. And let's turn to that then, the second point that he makes sure. We shall also live with him. Verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Uh, I try never to say Christ died for us. I, I always try to say Christ died and rose for us. The living Savior. The one who died lives today. And so the, the apostle moves on very quickly. No, not only now has the believer died with Christ, but the, the believer lives with Christ. There's the negative thing, the old unregenerate state, and that ceased to be. And then there is this positive counterpart. We, we are new people. And we live our entire lives with the Son of God. Now, again, this is no obligation. Paul is not saying to us, strive, live, rise with Christ. He's not speaking of any process that's going on. He's not saying to us that we are to go on living with Christ. He's reminding us that in our past, at our new birth, we had this experience that we rose. We had new life. We were resurrected with Christ. What the believer was has ceased to be, and what the believer is now is the result of the gift of God's Son and the gift of God's Spirit. It's this change of status that God provides. You died with Christ. He has to bring up the death of Christ. You see, in this verse again, he comes back to our union with Christ on the cross. Calvary is that important. God is sovereign in all things, and every problem finds its answer on Calvary. And new life and salvation always begin there. The believer isn't what he was. He will never be what he once was again. And no matter how concerned we are in Christian humility to hang our heads and say, yeah, but I'm, I'm not perfect and acknowledge the presence of sin in our own lives. We dare not reduce our crucifixion with Christ to something incidental, or something that just had to do with the, the origins of following the Savior. Something on the fringes. It is a totally supernatural thing. That God did for us. He annihilated the unregenerate man I was. The totally corrupt and carnal and selfish and unspiritual hostile man I used to be. I tell you again and again that he has ceased to be. God nailed him to the cross with Christ and he died. But those who died with Christ live, he says, verse 8. It is not enough for us to speak of the negatives of Christian conversion and the reality of evangelical repentance and the things we turned our back on and the places that we no longer go and the things we no longer do and the days that are now different and the ideas that we once held that we hold no longer. All the negatives, they are vital, they are indispensable for any credible Christian discipleship. 
There is no believer who is not crucified with Christ. There is no believer who hasn't made a breach with what he used to be. But those are negatives and they are not enough. These redeemed people, they not only died, they live. And how do they live? They live again with Christ. They not only heard of him and read about him and pray to him, but they live with him. Verse 8, they live in union with Jesus Christ. Remember the gospel invitation. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. There are burdens that we've got to carry. You know, there's that uh, um, dairy firm that makes uh, cheeses and yogurts and milk, and it's got the symbol of a Dutch girl, and she has a yoke on her shoulders, and she's carrying two heavy pails of milk. There are burdens that we have to carry, and there's a yoke that helps us to carry them. But this is a double yoke. Alongside us, there is another notch on that yoke, and Christ is there with us. He is Bearing our burdens with us. Or there is the yoke that the oxen have. And there are the two oxen. And they are pulling a great load. They are pulling a plow through a dry field. We are towing so many burdens. We are pulling them through life. The burdens of our um, finances and our health and our testimony, and our work for Jesus Christ, and we're going through life. But we're not yoked by ourselves to that burden. It's, It's a double yoke. And who is yoked with us in carrying our burdens or pulling our burdens with us? It's this extraordinary one who tells us that we can do all things through him who strengthens us. Whatever the weight, we, we, we never carry it alone. Whatever the future has for us, we never face it alone. We are yoked. We are with Christ. We are joined to him. We read tonight of Mary Magdalene and uh, her love for Jesus. He delivered her from demonic powers. And now she was sweet and pure and she loved him. and She lived a life of service of, of Christ. and She loved to be with him. She had walked with him and she'd uh, listened to him and she'd served him. She loved to walk arm in arm with him. And then she's there the first day of the week. She meets him. She's the first one that he speaks to. He makes himself known to her. She knows him and she automatically wants to oh no, the old walk with him and her arm through his arm as they walked together and, and as they shared things together. And oh, she loved to be a million times with him more than any other person in all the world. Jesus said, it's not going to be like this. It's going to be better than this. I could be with you uh, just at certain times in the day, some days, some weeks, and others times you're away and I know you appreciated so much being with me and clinging to me and 
wanting me. It's going to be better than that. I'll never leave you, Mary. I'll never forsake you. You'll never face a trial or a challenge or a temptation by yourself from now on. I'll be with you and you will be with me forever and ever. That's the reality of the Christian life. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, he says to us. How many Christians live like that? Everyone who is a believer, every man, woman, and child stand at this point in Paul's letter under Christian obligation. Every ordinary believer, not just those who've had the second blessing, not those who've been a Christian for a long time and have reached the stage now when they are with Christ. There's no Christian, but he's in Christ. And how often is he with him? He lives with Christ permanently and absolutely all the time, 24-7. Not only when he feels close to God or when he is living as he ought to live, but the believer is wedded to the Son of God. And the believer is to bring into his reckoning, his evaluation, his assessment of life and actions and the future. He is to bring into his reckoning that Jesus Christ will always be there with him and for him. It's the whole context of our lives now as Christians. Once he believes in Christ, he is in Christ. He is with Christ. There's just one life from now on and Christ is our life. All right, let me illustrate it. Marriage is valid not only in the delights of honeymoon and not only when the first child arrives or when partners have a special weekend together and they overflow with love and devotion to one another. Marriage is not only when the couple are close in marital fellowship and communion. They are united permanently and irreversibly. They can't pretend if there are days when he's forgotten something and he was late and she had to hang around for a long time and and there were tensions and frustrations and uh, they can't say, oh well, our marriage isn't valid today. And we don't need to live within the framework of marriage today. It's always valid. It is always the context Of our lives. There are days when the believer is backslidden. When he's in the depths. When he's in darkness and he has no light. He is still in Christ. There are days when he struggles in the Christian life. And he feels lukewarm. He is still with Christ. And he has an obligation then. Under all kinds of days and moods. To conduct himself as one who possesses the life of Christ. And is a member of the body of Jesus Christ. And that's a thing that we have to apply and and remember. When our faith is weak. When some kind of declension has come into our lives. That does not lessen our obligation to live for Christ and with Christ and like Christ. 
It's one of the things that uh, stands over us in constant rebuke of our lives. What are we in Christ? What are we with Christ? What are we doing in this particular kind of conduct? When our lives become plaintive and grumbly and impatient and worldly. When our lives in terms of Christian ethics are irregular lives. What am I doing as a member of the body of Christ in this condition? And you see, this is what Paul is challenging us. He starts by telling us what we are. And later on in the letter, he's going to be very specific in telling us what to do. But we begin always by a new grasp of what the Christian is. And he's criticizing us, what I am. When I sin, I'm going to sin with Jesus Christ. Because I can't undo and detach Jesus Christ and this living union with him. I can't cut the cord that unites me to him. I can't cancel my regeneration when I am worldly. I'm regenerate all the time. If I am worldly, I am still regenerate in my worldliness I am disgracing my regenerateness. You know the story of uh, Spurgeon's grandfather. He was a pastor. Um, Stambourne, was it? And uh, uh, Spurgeon, as the oldest of a large family, went to live with his grandparents for years. And uh, he would listen to the conversation that his grandfather and his grandmother had at the table and so on. And... uh, His grandfather's heart was breaking because of the conduct of one of the members of the congregation. He'd backslidden. He wasn't coming to church any longer and he was really frequenting taverns and pubs. And Spurgeon heard the brokenness of his grandfather as he prayed for this man. And he was grieved. And so he decided he would do something about it. So the six-year-old boy left the house and walked down to the village. And he found the man sitting at a table outside a pub. And he stood before him and he looked at him and he said, What doest thou here, Elijah? What are you, uh, a Christian who lives in Christ, what are you doing in this particular situation? What are you? A man in Christ doing here. What are you, a regenerate man in this environment? A man in union with Christ in these surroundings. Day after day, week after week. The believer lives in Christ. Life with Christ. Life with Christ always. And what is it? Well, it's a life that's hidden from mankind It's hidden from fellow students. They don't look at you and they say, oh, here are people. Look at them. They they are living in the Son of God. They don't say that. They are children of God. Our best friends in school, they, they don't say that. Our unconverted parents, they don't know who we are. The world doesn't recognize the majesty and the glory of the Christian status. Look at the foul ways in which Christians are being treated today in Syria and in Iraq and in North Korea. 
and in the Sudan. They accounted the off-scouring of all things. They're beheaded and abducted and raped. They're stigmatized because of their Christian commitment. And Christians in all those places are being called to live with Christ. It means that the life of the Christian is a hidden life. In, in, this, in this sense, it's inexplicable. Um, the National Health Service doesn't understand how a Christian can live as he does. Specialists in the university in their different subjects, arts and science, they, they, they can't explain a Christian. You can't tell that this person is a Christian from the way he was brought up. You can't tell that he's a Christian in Christ from the influences that he had in school. You can't say, well, he's got such a lovely temperament, and that's the explanation of how he lives. It's a hidden life. It's a mysterious life. And so the challenge is, Do our lives perplex our neighbors and our families and the people we share um, a house with or a hall of residence with? How often do we make people ask the question, how can he react so gently under provocation? How can he be so sweet? What, What goes with him? What makes him tick? And you can't explain it only in biological or psychological terms. You can only explain it that this man is with Christ. He lives with Christ. He walks with Christ and he talks with Christ. He has the redeeming power of grace in his heart and life. God has made up his mind. He's going to change him into the image of Jesus Christ. And he's at work. Now, doing this. It's not just that God warns us or instructs us or beseeches us or pleads with us or commands us, but that the living, the living Son of God has come near to us and he puts forth his power and he's making absolutely certain that we're going to change, that we're not going to be the people we were, that we're going to be new people. And the path of the just is like a shining light and it shines more and more to the perfect day. Well, now is my life a mystery to the world? Is there something about me that can only be explained by the fact that I am with Jesus? They took notice of them, we're told, that they had been with Jesus. And I'm not talking now about certain feelings of communion, great and glorious and desirable as those feelings may be. But I'm talking of this reality of what ordinary Christian men and women are. They are, they are people in organic union with a risen Savior. And their lives can only be explained if you bring in the life of God, the Lord of glory. And he's there, and he's encouraging us. And he's picking us up when we fall. And he's dusting us down. 
And he's a living support to us. We keep going because of the strength he gives us. John saw it in the book of Revelation. He saw a river of the water of life and it had come from the throne of God and the Lamb. And his life then, there on Patmos, a prisoner, removed from all that were near and dear to him, could only be explained in terms of the throne of sovereignty and the Lord who is the Lamb of God, who is in the midst of that throne. And so we respond to disappointment and bad grades and job opportunities taken from us and unrequited love in terms of a stream that comes to us and irrigates us and washes us and refreshes us uh, day by day. You find it in Psalm 46. There is a river whose stream makes glad the city of God, the holy place in which the Most High dwells. God is in the midst of her. She will not fall. God will help her. And that right early. And the, he is con- contemplating Jerusalem under siege. And he's thinking of uh, how the, long this siege can last because there were no deep wells in Jerusalem that could give water to men and women and children and animals and plants while the siege was going around. And then he said, ah, there is a river. And what is it? God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her at the break of day. And every one of us can say, there's a river. We're dry and we're nervous and we're sick. And we are uncertain about the future and we are heartbroken and there's a river. And that river can cleanse us and refresh us in wonderful, wonderful ways. We live because the Lord is living in us and the Lord is living with us. And his strength is made perfect because we are so terribly weak. We have to go to him and we can only get by with what he gives us. Well, now are we living then new and transformed lives has our old self been crucified with Christ and are we living a new life with Christ? Terms that, uh, in terms that behaviorist science can't explain, but only by marvelous grace of a loving God we are kept day by day. And let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we ask Thee, oh, show us the great privilege of dying with Christ and the old man, the old self gone. Thank you for that. And for new life with Christ, being yoked to him and nothing, no power in hell or earth can break that yoke that we're joined to you this coming week. Thank you for all that you've done for us. We could only get by by the fact that we are with you and you're with us. We pray, loving God, keep us then. Help us, guide us, provide for us. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.